0: Hello, and welcome to Going Viral. I am David Lim. It is Thursday, the 10th of September. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Professor Rainer McIntyre. Our conversation will range from the problems faced by our frontline healthcare workers in Victoria, the problems with contract tracing, also in Victoria, and preparing for the increase in risky behaviour and activities as Christmas approaches. The latest global and local COVID-19 statistics will follow the interview. Before we start, I'd like to encourage you to register for the next webcasts where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can listen to these podcasts on the Health website, or you can download the Health app and access many other learning resources as well. In today's podcast, I will be speaking with Professor Raina McIntyre about lessons learned from the second wave of COVID-19 in Victoria. Professor McIntyre, could you please tell us a little about yourself?
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Raina McIntyre, and I am a Principal Research Fellow at the Kirby Institute. I head up the Biosecurity Program, and my research is on Epidemic Infectious Diseases.
0: Reina, reflecting on the second wave in Victoria, we have all heard of the tragic toll in the aged care sector and in our frontline healthcare workers. Can you please tell us more about the healthcare workers, the problems they faced, the actual size of the problem and what may have contributed to it?
1: So one of the problems is that, um, you know, healthcare workers are clearly in a highly contaminated, high-risk environment. We know that the virus can be aerosolized and particularly in indoor settings where the ventilation isn't great. Uh, You know, some of the studies have even shown that in a hospital ward and ICU where there were 12 air changes an hour, people still got infected if they weren't wearing a respirator. So um, we know that aerosols can accumulate over time in closed environments. And that's one of the biggest problems. And people think about coughing and sneezing But really, you know, every time you breathe or you speak, you emit aerosols that could have virus in them. And although the actual quantity of virus in a breath or in a spoken word is less than in a cough or a sneeze, you think about how many times a patient in a ward breathes and speaks compared to coughs and sneezes, and you can get a sense of the accumulation of aerosols over time. And a lot of hospital buildings are old and they're not you know, well-maintained and there hasn't been a huge focus on engineering controls to make them uh, really safe. Uh, and although PPE is said to be the last line of defence, in practice it's often all that's available to healthcare workers. You know, People talk about the hierarchy of controls and they say you have to try and eliminate the risk. Well, that's fine if you're in the construction industry where the risk or the hazard is incidental to the actual job that needs to be done. For a health worker who has to treat a patient with COVID, the hazard is the job. You know, you can't eliminate the hazard. And that's what makes it um, very tricky for health workers. And really, you know, the proof is in the pudding. We've seen over 3,000 healthcare workers infected. So something's not right. You know, they're not being adequately protected. And I think there hasn't been enough of a focus on work health and safety. Um, it is a work, health and safety issue. You know, health workers deserve to have optimal protection in the workplace. We shouldn't be sitting there arguing about droplets versus airborne. Um, if there's any uncertainty, of which there is plenty, and we're always learning new things as we go along with this pandemic, then health workers should be afforded the optimal protection. Uh, that's the precautionary principle. And it was the main finding of the SARS Commission after in Canada after SARS in 2003, where You know, in Toronto, they refused to give health workers a respirator, saying that it was droplet spread. And they had a huge outbreak in contrast to Vancouver, which where they gave their health care workers respirators, uh, they didn't have an outbreak. But in Toronto, they did. Um, Three health workers died. And there was an inquiry afterwards. And it really uh, laid bare a lot of the deficiencies and the problems with the approach then. And it's exactly what we're seeing here today.
0: Reina, do our healthcare workers have a voice that is heard at the right levels?
1: Not really. Um, there is, though, a huge grassroots movement of healthcare workers who are at the front line, who are dissatisfied and who are, have kind of mobilised and grouped together and they're trying their hardest to get some change and um, push for better protection for their, themselves and their peers. Um, hasn't resulted in that change as yet, although Victoria did change its guidelines in the midst of all the um, healthcare worker infections. They did start recommending respirators. Some hospitals were using respirators even before um, that change. However, um, there are still hospitals in Melbourne. We're hearing reports from uh, some hospitals uh, where people are still unable to get a respirator uh, when they're caring for COVID patients.
0: What can we do as uh, people who are at the grassroots here relying on the fact that our frontline workers are indeed probably the most important people at any pandemic.
1: So I think roles of bodies like the AMA and the RACGP are really important. Um, And the AMA is already doing a lot. The new president of the AMA has been um, really out there pushing for better guidelines, which is great. And um, the RACGP as well, you know, has published some good... Um, pieces, but I think that's what we need at that level. We need all the relevant organisations to be mobilising and that includes the Faculty of Occupational um, Medicine and uh, Environmental and Occupational Medicine. You know, we need all the colleges and and, um, bodies coming together and pushing.
0: Well, it sounds like we really got a bit of work to do before the next pandemic hits us, Raina.
1: Well, we've we've still got a way to go with this one. You know, we've heard yesterday about uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine being put on pause, the phase three trial after a serious adverse event, uh, which was transverse myelitis. So, you know, there's still going to be a lot of bumps and hurdles before we come to that time where we can have a safe and effective vaccine for everyone. And we will be dealing with this virus until
0: then. Raina, just moving along to a different topic. Let's talk about the contact tracing methods and resources that we have both in New South Wales and Victoria. Clearly one seems to work better. So what are the differences in the two systems and what problems have been encountered in Victoria?
1: Yeah, contact tracing is a very straightforward procedure and every health department in Australia at state and territory level knows how to do it. It is bread and butter public health they do it for meningococcal disease, for TB, for measles, for lots of other infectious diseases. It's, you know, as old as history, the, the science of contact tracing. So essentially, when a case is notified, you have to find out where did they get infected from? You know, who did they get infected from? And then look to see if there's some outbreak that's been missed and other people infected at the same time as your case. And then you have to look at who your case may have infected. Um, and look at their close contacts, which is generally the people in their household, their friends and their work colleagues. Um, Occasionally, you do get these super spreading outbreaks that happen in closed, poorly ventilated indoor settings like clubs and pubs, etc. We saw the Crossroads Hotel as an example, uh, where one person might infect a couple of dozen other people. Um, But generally, it's the close contacts who are most at risk. And about In a meta-analysis of the risk of close contacts, it's about 25% of becoming infected. So those contacts are the next generation of cases. And if you don't identify them and stop the transmission from them when they get infected, then they're going to cause more and more infections and it's going to snowball. So that's the importance of contact tracing. And every health department knows how to do it. The key differences between New South Wales and Victoria are, firstly... And New South Wales is much better resourced. Victoria, the health system has been stripped bare over a very long period of time, probably 20 years, and they have been operating at a very minimalist model, um, which is okay in the good times, but in the bad times, when you've got a pandemic, a minimalist model is going to, you know, the cracks are going to show and they really didn't have the resources. Um, they had fewer people to do the contact tracing. Even if you've got 20 cases a day, right? Each, per, each case will have on average 10 to 25 contacts. So if you've got 20 cases a day, that's 200 to um, 500 contacts you've got to trace each day. And that's a lot. And that's the New South Wales kind of situation, you know, around 20 or less cases a day. Um, so even for New South Wales, that's a big job because if you don't get through all those contacts in 24 hours, they're gonna, there's going to be a backlog and then you're going to have new cases the next day. And you can imagine how quickly that backlog can accumulate and you really have to trace the contacts quickly. If you don't do it within 24 to 48 hours, you miss that window when the ones who are going to become infected will be infectious and they, they are highly infectious before the symptoms start. So you really have to uh, work quickly with the contact tracing for this virus. Um, In Victoria, you know, they were having 700 cases a day. So that's 7,000 to uh, 17,000 cases a day, contacts a day to trace. That is just massive. You know, the truth is no country, no city can manage contact tracing efficiently when the epidemic gets too large because there'll be an order of magnitude more contacts to trace for each case. So um, that's where the digital contact tracing methods come in. And we saw in Taiwan, in China, in Hong Kong, in um, South Korea, many of the Asian countries that handled their epidemic successfully. When it became too big, like in Wuhan in February, January, February, they, they used digital contact tracing and that's the way they were able to get on top of it. So, and if you don't do that, the only alternative is to lock down. The only way you can stop the epidemic is lockdown. So the contact tracing is really important. It's a matter of having adequate human resources and um, using digital technology when the human resource capacity is exceeded.
0: Raina, any comments on the COVID safe app?
1: Yeah, so I understand there are some technical problems with it, uh, particularly on Apple phones, not so much on the Androids. Uh, But nonetheless, there's been very low uptake of it. So very few people have um, downloaded the app and used it. I think, you know, maybe less than 20% of people, maybe 10%. I don't know the exact number, but it's very low. To be effective, first of all, you need it to be used by at least 50 to 80% of the population, and we're nowhere near that. And then there's uh, some actual technical problems with it. But there's so many different digital solutions. And, you know, Victoria started talking to a company to look at some digital solutions, but that really is the answer. Um, Because to do contact tracing at scale, um, you do need digital technology.
0: Yes, I look forward to that. I just feel that there is a small proportion of people who seem to be suspicious of anything about being tracked and traced.
1: There's other ways to do it. Like you can do it with the Opal cards, with um, credit cards, with there's lots of other technologies that can be used. Um, It's not just, you know, most of the technologies do involve an app, but there are other ways of doing it.
0: Now, here's a difficult question. What really is the condition of Australia's public health system?
1: Um, It's pretty good, but it varies by state. So, as I said, you know, uh, states like Queensland and New South Wales have better resources than Victoria. Victoria has the most impoverished health system in the country. The hospitals, the public health sector, they're just... They're really under resourced, and I hope that really though every health department needs to have an investment of resources because you need quite big surge capacity um, during a pandemic and most, most jurisdictions have done that they've got extra people on board, including Victoria um, they've dealt with it on the fly. but I think there needs to be a serious and concerted effort to to make more uh, to have more core capacity. in in all health departments. It's not just about creating new ICU beds and new ventilators, that's part of it. But I think the other part of it, the capacity to contact Trace, to um, do the outbreak investigations, that's just been forgotten. You know, I don't think anyone really who was making decisions realized how important that was. There's, you know, we saw in the UK, um, their SAGE committee, which is their expert committee in, in February or so saying, oh, if the epidemic gets too big, we'll stop contact tracing. Uh, Clearly, that was a case of not having um, appropriate advice because that's the worst thing you can do. You're going to have an uncontrolled epidemic if you stop the, the contact tracing. The two important things are finding the cases, so test, 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 and contact tracing and quarantining those contacts. Those are the two single most important things to control the epidemic size.
0: Reina, looking at the fact that Australia has a two-tiered system when it comes to, if you like, the federal government's objectives and needs and the states, what do you think has happened and what are the consequences of the fracturing of the objectives between the needs of the federal government and of the premiers of states?
1: So I think in practice, what we've seen is really the states managing the pandemic response um, because the operational capacity is at the state level and it's, it's um, run at the state level. So that's appropriate. Um, and the states have all done a really good job, including Victoria. The federal government is responsible for aged care. So that's the most important area where the federal government can make a difference because clearly... Um, aged care is a major at major risk for outbreaks of COVID-19 and that's not just the residents but the staff as well and a lot of staff work between multiple aged care facilities so they can you know carry the infection from one facility to another as can visitors so that, and the problem with aged care is it's not a healthcare setting it's a residential setting and so The accreditation standards are very, very minimalist. There's nothing like we have in hospitals for infection control. And I think that needs to change.
0: Is it time to revive the idea of an Australian CDC?
1: Yeah, look, you know, I've just uh, been through too many of those to not be cynical. (laughs) It's been talked about for 30 years, as long as I've been in public health. And, um, you know, Australia is one of the few high income countries that does not have a CDC and as a result you know we're using all this patchwork of things that are built for other purposes like OSMAT which is really it was designed for trauma critical care um and other sort of mecha- all these ad hoc mechanisms are trying to be band-aids in in fixing the problem having said that though Uh, You can look at the CDC in the US, it's virtually been absent in the pandemic response. And that's been, uh, for political reasons, it's been gagged and bound and silenced. Um, So it's not necessarily going to help it really, unless, you know, you can guarantee autonomy and independence from government. But I think it's been 30 years since, you know, public service has been independent from government in Australia.
0: Yes, it sounds like a dream that has lots of cobwebs on it at the moment. Raina, Christmas is coming, and most people are either fatigued or fed up with various forms of restrictions. What do you anticipate may happen, and what are some of the possible risks?
1: Yeah, so that's, that's a really risky time, um, particularly when there's no, you know, sort of stage four, three lockdown happening, you know, the office Christmas parties start happening in early November. You know, because uh, people start taking leave and going away by November. So really, it's it's about to, in two months' time we're going to have we're going to start to see gatherings um, with you know alcohol, people getting you know less inhibited than they normally would, and the chances of social distancing when people are having a party. You know, New Year's Eve, Christmas gatherings. We've got the church services. You know, the combination of singing in a in a closed enclosed space. There's been lots and lots of outbreaks in churches around the world and other religious gatherings, Um, and singing is particularly a risk because it generates a lot more aerosols than speaking. Um, So there's a lot of high-risk activities all happening in that period, November to January. And if we don't go into that period with zero community transmission, there's going to be a huge risk of um,
0: resurgence. Is there any way we can help to reduce the risk?
1: Uh, well, I think uh, there needs to be some very careful planning around public events church church gatherings um, to try and mitigate the risk as much as possible. I mean, I think if church services can be held outdoors, that would be great. otherwise, you know instead of having a service in the morning and the evening to Christmas day uh, and a midnight mass, maybe maybe they could have more services spread throughout the day for fewer people who can be distanced, keep all the windows open. You know, I think there needs to be some serious planning around all the expected events, the new year's Eve celebrations, you know, um, things that are going to happen in big cities need to be planned out. And, uh, you know, in general, indoor settings are much more high risk than outdoor settings. So um, if planning can be done with that in mind, I think we need to actively plan rather than just hope for the best.
0: Now, do you have any final messages for our listeners?
1: Uh, Well, I think, you know, for GPs, just to to maintain a high index of suspicion and a low threshold for testing uh, for COVID-19, remembering that young people, there's been a range of case reports of young people in their 20s, 30s, who have no respiratory symptoms, don't feel unwell. They present with a sudden catastrophic cardiovascular event, an infarct, a pulmonary embolus, a stroke. So you can have those kind of sudden vascular presentations in younger adults. Um, So have a very low threshold for testing.
0: Thank you once again, Professor McIntyre, for giving us some of your precious time and informing us of these important things.
1: It's a pleasure, David. Thanks.
0: Goodbye, Leila. From the John Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Centre, we find that the global COVID-19 cases is reported at 27.7 million the USA has recorded more than 6.3 million cases. India, more than 4.3 million. Brazil has exceeded 4.1 million. Russia has exceeded 1 million. Peru, more than 696,000. And Colombia has about 680,000 cases. Global COVID-19 deaths has passed another green milestone exceeding 900,000 deaths. The USA recorded more than 190,500, Brazil nearly 127,000, India nearly 74,000, and Mexico with more than 68,400 deaths. At the time of going to air, I do not have the latest New South Wales and Queensland figures. Australia has reported to date 26,325 cases of COVID-19 and 788 people have died from it. In the past today, Victoria recorded 51 new cases and 7 deaths from COVID-19. self-claim.